0: Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. and welcome to our second episode on the sixth commandment. So, in this episode we're going to continue our discussion by talking about sex and chastity, which sounds like a bit of an archaic, slightly daggy word, but honestly, this is actually the most awesome topic and I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you. Okay, and this is actually a really good place for us to start, right? With the idea that sex is something awesome. Sex is an amazing, good thing. You know, so often... The secular world acts like Catholics have this weird kind of negative hang up about sex. Like we all think it's dirty or it's something that we need to shut down or we need to hide from or repress. But in actual fact, that is literally the opposite of how the church treats sex. The church celebrates sex. In fact, in my own experience, the Catholic church is the place where I have found the most truly joyful, holistic, profound appreciation of what sex is and what it is for. And I mean, these days sex has become something that is so kind of downplayed almost and trivialized. And it's often treated as basically just a kind of recreational, meaningless activity. And in contrast to this, the church teaches that it is so much more than that, that we need to aim higher than what you know, the kind of secular society offers us when it comes to sex. And the church's teaching is not aimed at getting us to like repress our sexual desires. It is aimed at helping us to see the true power and beauty of sex and to appreciate it for what it is and what it is for. It's kind of like, you know, if someone owned an incredible amazing like magic wand, right? but they had no idea what it was. They had no idea what it was capable of or of the power of it. And they just thought it was like a random stick. And so they were using it as like, you know, a back scratcher (laughs) because they didn't understand what, what it could do. You would want to go up to that person and like shake them by the shoulders and be like, dude, do you have any idea what that thing you're holding is? Like, let me show you how amazing it is. Stop using it as a back scratcher. Okay. And that is what the church does for us, right? She's like, Okay, we can't just use sex as as a meaningless tool, something to scratch an itch, right? It is powerful, it's wonderful, it's amazing, and we need to rediscover what a gift it is. So let's begin with the idea that sex is about more than just the body. So procreation is something that we see throughout the animal kingdom, right? It's not something that's unique to humans. However, and we've talked about this many times before, right? The human person has this added spiritual dimension, right? We have a soul and everything that we do, we do body and soul because the two are totally united. I never just do something with my body that is in complete isolation to my spirit, right? So in light of that, We can kind of see how sex also has this sort of spiritual dimension when it occurs between two human persons. When a man and a woman are united in the sexual act, they don't just physically bond with each other, right? Their souls are also involved. They become connected and intertwined, right? I mean, even if we're completely desensitized and we're treating sex like it's nothing, the fact that we are body and soul means that even if we're not aware of it, even if we're desensitized from it, our spirit is involved in sex. And I don't know if you've had this experience before where you have a conversation with someone and they'll say something like, oh yeah, I was having you know casual sex with this guy and then it just ended or you know we broke up or whatever. And even though it was just nothing and it was casual and, and I know that it was nothing, I just feel devastated. I'm so upset. And you hear that and it's like, yeah, of course you do. You were just like ripped out of a relationship where your soul was intertwined with someone else's, you know, that is so meaningful. And then secondly, sex between a man and a woman has the potential to create not just a material being, a bunch of matter, but a whole human person body and soul, someone with an intellect and a will who has an eternal spirit that is called to live forever in heaven, right? That's an incredible power that sex has. And then finally, the sexual act is linked, not just to our bodies, but also to our intellect and our will. So as human beings, we have the capacity through sex to say, not just, I want you, or I like you, or I'm, you know, enjoying this pleasurable experience, we get to say to that person, I love you. I choose you. I give myself freely entirely to you. And we get to experience the joy that comes from being intimately and freely united, totally with another person. And that's not something that, you know, we just do instinctively and that we don't have a choice in. We actually get to incorporate our freedom and our will into that act. So what we can see here is that sex is a powerful, beautiful, amazing thing that goes beyond our kind of bodily instincts and desires. It goes beyond matter. Used well (laughs) Sex has the power to unite us to each other in a profound way, to allow us to participate in the creation of new human life, and to express and experience not just desire and attraction, but self-giving love. And for this reason, the church invites us to treat sex not just as a recreational activity or as something that is casual or meaningless, but as a total, meaningful, lifelong gift of self in which nothing is withheld. The whole person is given to another person and then they give in return. Now, of course, when we look at the world around us, both right now and like throughout history, we can see that sex has not always been treated like this. And also that it is really hard to live up to that ideal, right? It is hard not to just use sex as a backscratcher, as, as something that is just about, you know, pleasure and instinct, right? It is so much easier to settle for a fast food diet than to work hard for the real deal, right? That is hard and we kind of suck at it as humans, but just because something is hard and just because we suck at it, that does not mean that we should give up on it and settle for less. It's kind of like with our health, right? Like it's really hard to eat good food and to look after our bodies and often we kind of suck at it, but that doesn't mean that we should just throw our hands in the air and be like, oh, well, I guess I'll just live on McDonald's. (laughs) In the theology of the body, the church gives us this joyful vision for what sex can be and should be. And that's what we're made for. And we should not settle for anything less than that. So, the church calls us to embrace this reality by living a virtue that we call chastity. So what is chastity? I mean, it can sound like a kind of lame word, sort of calls to mind images of like squeaky clean Christians coming to your high school for a chastity talk and they, you know, hand out purity rings that we all know no one is going to use and then we all hold hands and sing kumbaya and it's completely embarrassing and they're like totally out of touch with reality. I mean, it's a shame that the word chastity has gotten that kind of daggy reputation because that is not what it is. Chastity is not lame. I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but legit, like if we think about it, do you know what chastity really means? It doesn't just mean, you know, sitting around singing kumbaya and being dags. It means genuine empowerment. Chastity means that I know my worth. I know my dignity as a child of God. I was created to be loved in a way that respects and honors my integrity and my dignity. And I refuse to settle for anything less than that. I will not be someone's object. I will not be someone's plaything. I am a human person that deserves to receive and to give true Total love. And by the way, while we're on the topic of what chastity isn't, do you know what chastity also is not? It is not repression. And I know I already said this, but just to reinforce, it does not mean shoving your sexual appetites down and being like, sex is bad, don't have sex, okay? Treating it like it's something dirty. No. Chastity means mastering, not repressing, mastering our appetites and our instincts so that we can use them in a way that will orient us towards true, deep happiness and not just the sort of fast food diet version. So another word that we could use for chastity is love, right? Chastity is the virtue of knowing how to love both myself and others. And that is an incredible virtue to have. Now, it might surprise you to know that chastity is not just about sex, right? This topic sometimes gets reduced to the whole, like, don't have sex outside of marriage thing, which is important and is an important aspect of it. But this topic is about so much more than that. So the Catechism actually spends a lot of time in this section talking not about sex, but about personal virtue and self-mastery. Because basically the idea is that, You know, we can't give what we don't have. And that sounds like a bumper sticker slogan, but it's actually true, right? We cannot give what we don't have. So before I can think about giving myself in love to other people, not just in sex, but in, you know, in friendship or in any kind of relationship, first, I actually have to be the master of myself. I have to be a whole, complete human person before I can give myself to anyone else. It's kind of like if I offered a lift to someone in my car But my car was missing a wheel, or the engine was broken. Or if I offered to play, you know, a piano duet with someone, but I hadn't learnt to play the piano first. So what does it mean to be a whole integrated human person? Well, we've talked about this before, right? That human beings, as well as having a material body that has desires and instincts and passions and appetites, we also have an intellect and a will. So If I want to be a whole integrated human person, then every aspect of my humanity needs to be harmonized. My intellect and my will needs to be working together with my body, my desires and instincts and passions. I need to be able to act in a way that is in line with what I believe to be true in my intellect and what I desire with my will. And that is actually a very difficult thing to achieve because our passions are kind of insane. It's like we've all got a a bit of a wild animal inside of us that just wants to eat ice cream all of the time. And it can be really difficult to gain mastery over that sort of voice of of our instincts and passions. But if we don't gain mastery over ourselves, if we try to give ourselves to someone else, then that will be like giving a wild horse to someone that we love, right? It's not in control. At some point, it's going to bolt or it's going to throw the person off its back or it's going to, you know, kick them in the stomach or something. So point 2339 of the Catechism says that chastity includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. And that's a really great point, right? That self-mastery, rather than just being a restrictive thing, actually frees us to love other people. It means that we can say to someone else, I am there for you. And we know that we're actually free to make that promise. We will be able to follow through on it because we're not ruled by our changeable passions and desires. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where like if you have a friend or you're in a relationship with someone and they tell you all the time that they love you and that, you know, they're there for you if you ever need them. And they might genuinely desire that. But when it actually comes to the crunch, when you actually need something from them that might be a bit difficult or that might require some effort, they're actually not able to rise above their desire for comfort and to help you out and to be there for you. And when that happens, you might very justifiably feel that that person isn't really truly able to love you as much as they might want to. So what we're talking about here is a virtue that we call temperance. Point 2341 defines temperance as the virtue which seeks to permeate the passions and appetites of the senses with reason. And this is a crucial virtue that we need to attain if we want to be able to love others. Now, Do we need to be able to live temperance absolutely perfectly before we can love anyone else? No, of course not. We are all flawed human beings and we are always going to struggle with this virtue. So point 2342 says that self-mastery is a long and exacting work. One can never consider it acquired once and for all. It presupposes renewed effort at all stages of life. Okay, so we will always struggle with this thing of self-mastery. We'll always have that wild animal inside of us that's trying to kind of like run the show. No one is saying that you have to be a perfect person before you can have friends or be in a relationship. But the better we are able to live temperance, the better we will be at loving others. Our capacity to love and to give ourselves will grow in direct proportion to our self mastery. So how do we grow in this virtue of temperance? Well, one really great way to go about it is to try to practice something that we call mortification. So mortification just means doing little things every day that strengthen our will and help us to govern our passions. Not to to suppress our passions, but to master them, right? So that might mean, you know, finding ways to just say no to ourselves, to say no to that wild animal in tiny ways every day. Like it doesn't have to be anything dramatic. So it might mean, for instance, you know, getting out of bed in the morning when my alarm goes off rather than lying in bed for an extra 10 minutes. Or maybe it means not putting salt on my food sometimes, or eating a few extra veggies with my dinner. Or when I finish eating my dinner, I do the dishes straight away before I sit down to watch Gilmore Girls. And this is actually quite a countercultural practice mortification, because we live in a world that constantly tells us that our only aim should be to minimize suffering And maximize pleasure. So it can sound like a kind of masochism, right? To deliberately do things that cause us to suffer. But if you think about it, we actually do this all the time in various other contexts, right? Like if I want to get healthy, I have to get out of bed early in the morning and go to the gym, even when I don't feel like it. I have to eat fruit and veggies and I have to have one piece of cake instead of 10. And the same thing applies to our spiritual lives, right? If I want to get spiritually healthy and strong, that requires a level of kind of self-imposed suffering. Again, nothing dramatic. No one is saying you have to sleep on a concrete floor and live off bread and water. It just means exercising the muscles of our will and our intellect a little bit more every day. Now, crucially, point 2345 of the Catechism reminds us that chastity is a gift from God, a grace. We can't fall into this idea that it's all up to me and that I have to do everything on my own because that is impossible. We can't do it on our own. We are big, silly, weak, dum-dums. And if it were left all up to us, then we would fail miserably. Okay, So we do what we can, but we can also never stop asking God for the grace to live this virtue better. So... Once we have a degree of this personal integrity and self-mastery, we will then be able to give ourselves to others. So when we combine our knowledge that we are infinitely loved by God and that that is enough right, with the virtue of temperance, self-mastery that allows us to freely give ourselves to other people, then we are in a position to begin loving those around us in a healthy and even holy way. So, what does it mean to love another person? Is this just an emotional experience or is there something more to it? Well, John Paul II writes that love is not merely a feeling, it is an act of the will that consists of preferring in a constant manner the good of others to the good of oneself. Okay, that is what love is. Love is seeking the good of another person. Now, this applies to all human relationships, right? It's not something that is just reserved to romantic or sexual relationships. We are called to express that self-giving love in all of our human relationships. And that's why the Catechism then continues its discussion of chastity by talking about friendship. Point 2347 says that the virtue of chastity blossoms in friendship. Whether it develops between persons of the same or opposite sex, friendship represents a great good for all. Now, the form that that love and friendship might take will obviously vary according to a couple of things. First of all, my relationship with that person. So the way that I love my mum is going to be different to the way that I love my friends or a spouse or that person at work that I find really annoying, right? But in all of those situations, I'm called to seek the good of that person. And this includes living, you know, sexual purity with the people around me. So I might have a guy friend who we're really close and we get along really well. And that's fantastic. That's really good. But out of, you know, love and respect for his dignity as a child of God, and also for the fact that he is, he deserves, you know, the total self-giving love of marriage at some point. If I know that that's not going to be with me, then I have to be careful about the way that I kind of physically interact with him or the degree to which I sort of open my heart up to him or whatever just making sure that I'm showing respect for the sexual and personal dignity of that other person whatever my relationship with them might be and in a way that is appropriate to that relationship and the other factor that we need to take into account is our state of life and by that we mean whether we're single or celibate or married etc so the way that I love and seek the good of the people around me and the way that I live sexual purity and chastity is going to be different if I'm, you know, a single person who is open to marriage versus a single person who is consecrated and who has devoted themselves to God versus someone who is married. Okay. And then of course, there are those relationships that have a more obviously kind of sexual or romantic nature. So if I'm dating someone or I'm engaged to someone or I'm married to someone. Okay. So what does it mean to live chastity in that context? Well, what it means is that we approach sex in a way that maintains and shows reverence for its integrity and purpose, that we refrain from any act that violates the purpose of sex. Okay, so what does that mean? It sounds a bit abstract, violating the purpose of sex. Well, at this point, I am basically going to blatantly rip off Father Mike Schmitz because he summarizes this perfectly and I just can't top it. So Father Mike has this whole talk that I really recommend watching if you haven't already. It's called Love and Same-Sex Attraction. And in that talk, he talks about how in order to understand what something is, we look at what it is for, right? The purpose that it is oriented towards. And this applies not just to sex, but to everything. So for instance, if we want to understand what a table is, we might look at it at what it is for. So what's a table for? A table is for putting things on and also for eating off of and sitting around. Now, there might be situations in which I emphasize one of the uses of a table more than the others, So for instance, say I were to place a bunch of knickknacks on a table and then put the table in the corner of the room and I never actually sit around it and I never actually eat off it. In that situation, I'm not violating the purpose and the nature of the table, right? I haven't broken the table by putting lots of knickknacks on it and never eating off it. Okay. I'm just emphasizing one of its uses more than the others. But Crucially, I haven't stopped the table from being able to fulfill its full purpose. So I could still sit around it and eat off it if I wanted to. Okay. Now, imagine that I (laughs) sawed the four legs off the table. In that instance, I am actually breaking the table, right? I'm violating something in its nature because I'm not just emphasizing one of its uses over the others. I'm actually preventing the table from carrying out the fullness of its purpose. So I can no longer sit around that table and eat off of it. Okay. So in that instance, I have actually violated the purpose and therefore the nature of what the table is. Now, Let's apply this reasoning to sex. If we had to describe what sex is for, we might identify a few key things. First of all, sex is for making babies. Secondly, sex bonds a couple, right? It unites them physically, emotionally, spiritually, etc. And thirdly, sex brings us pleasure, right? It's something that we enjoy. It's an expression of love and care and, and joy between two people. Now, there might be instances in which I emphasize one of those uses or purposes of sex more than the other. So for instance, maybe I have sex with my spouse at a time when I'm probably not gonna fall pregnant. And the main aim is actually just to have fun and, and experience pleasure. Or maybe I really want to get pregnant and there are times when I'm a little bit clinical about it and the emphasis is not so much on, on, you know, pleasure or union. It's like, okay, I'm ovulating, let's do this. Okay. All of that is totally fine, right? Because in none of those instances, am I actually preventing any of the other purposes of the sexual act? It's just that I'm not emphasizing them as much in this particular instance. However, if I were to engage in a sexual act that made one of those things impossible So for instance, I'm not just having sex at a time in my cycle where I'm not going to get pregnant, but I'm actually putting something artificial in the way of pregnancy that actually makes it impossible that I will fall pregnant. Then I would be violating the purpose and therefore the nature of the sexual act. So the catechism in points 2351 to 2359 lists some examples of actions that constitute a violation of the sexual act because they actually make one of those purposes of sex impossible. So the first one is lust. So the catechism defines lust as a disordered desire for or inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure sought for itself Isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So, for example, say that I'm, you know, staring at some guy walking down the street, imagining how pleasurable sex would be with him, etc. In that situation, I'm objectifying that person and I'm deriving sexual pleasure from that objectification outside of the context of the unitive and procreative sexual act. Okay, and then another example is masturbation. Masturbation is basically sex with yourself, right? Enjoying that pleasure of sex without the possibility of union with another person in that act, and certainly without the possibility of procreation. And then thirdly, pornography. So again, when it comes to porn, where Emphasizing the pleasure of sex, but we're removing the intimacy and the union that occurs between the two persons. And then next, we have sex outside of the context of marriage. And the official term for that, which sounds a little bit archaic, is fornication, <laughs> but basically it just means sex outside of marriage. And that includes if you are married, but you're having sex with someone else who isn't your spouse. So earlier, we talked about how, you know, in the sexual act, you give yourself totally, body and soul to another person even if you're not intending to right that's just the reality of what happens now if i with my body say to someone else i give myself entirely to you but it, with my mind i'm thinking oh well this is just temporary or you know i will just see how this goes or i'm giving myself to you for as long as i feel like it or this is something that i can take back that's not a gift that's either a loan or a lie And we've talked in previous episodes about how, you know, you can't crack an egg into a bowl of flour and then mix them together and then try to separate them from each other. Right. And when we do that with human beings, when we unite ourselves like that, and then either, you know, leave the door open to to ripping ourselves apart, or we actually try to do it, that profoundly undermines and damages that unitive aspect of the sexual act. And then next we have Prostitution or sex work. Okay. The Catechism says that prostitution reduces the person to an instrument of sexual pleasure. So, again, it's about emphasizing pleasure to the exclusion of unity and procreation. Now, the Catechism goes on to say that the imputability or culpability of this offense can be lessened by destitution, blackmail, or social pressure. So, basically, what it's saying is that. A person who is involved in sex work may not be making a free choice. And in that situation, their personal culpability will be significantly reduced. So we can think, for instance, of Fontaine in Les Mis, this woman who is actually incredibly pure and good, and she's trying to do all the right things, but she's been put in this horrible situation where she doesn't have a choice. And we can return here to the idea that, you know, you need to have full knowledge and full consent to be culpable for a sin, even though it remains, you know, objectively wrong. And then we have um, a pretty sensitive one which is situations of sexual assault or rape and this is a pretty obvious one. The catechism says that rape is the forcible violation of the sexual intimacy of another person. It does injury to the just it does injury to justice and charity. Rape deeply wounds the respect freedom and physical and moral integrity to which every person has a right. It causes grave damage that can mark the person for life. It is always an intrinsically evil act. And then finally, we have any sexual act that makes procreation impossible. So this includes contraception, right? Contracepted sex. It also includes any sexual act that is intrinsically closed to life. Sex always has to be open to life. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have a baby or fall pregnant every time you have sex. That would be the ridiculous idea. Okay. But sex has to be open to life. Okay. We have to be like, I can't be personally putting anything in the way of new life being created. Now, one of the first things that might come to mind here is that this applies in particular to sexual acts that occur between two people of the same sex. But it also applies to heterosexual couples. And sometimes we can get caught up in thinking that the church is targeting just same-sex couples in saying this. But in actual fact, the Catholic Church holds everyone to the same standard when it comes to this. Okay, this is not just about same-sex couples. No one, this is what the church teaches, that no one should be having sex that is not open to life. doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're in. Okay, that is, that is just something that is equally shared across all relationships. Now, I don't want to paper over the fact that this reality might be particularly difficult and painful for someone who experiences same-sex attraction, because heterosexual couples can have sex that is open to life. Same-sex couples intrinsically can't. So a couple of things to say here. First of all, just to clarify that no one is saying that two persons of the same sex can't love each other deeply, right? There's nothing wrong with loving another human being. It's either Jason Evett or Father Mike Schmitz who talks about this. One of them talks about a conversation that they had with a girl who was in a same-sex relationship. And she was saying like, you know, my girlfriend and I, we really love each other and we look after each other and we bring out the best in each other. Like, what's wrong with that? And he was like, yeah, nothing. That's okay. <laughs> Great. Those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with loving another person and bringing out the best in them. But when it comes to sex, the truth applies to all human persons and all human relationships. And if it is true that a sexual act that denies procreation, it's not that it's just, it's wrong and that this is the rule. You're not allowed to do it. It's bad. It's that anything that violates the sexual act hurts us deeply, right? Because it breaks something right at the heart of us. And if that's true, then that's going to be true for all human relationships. Now, the other thing that I would say to someone who's in this situation and and finds the church's teaching on you know same-sex relationships difficult or painful, basically what I would say is that you are not alone. You are not unloved. You are not unwelcome. You are not the other. You are not outside and we're all pointing at you, right? Christ is there with you, first of all. If you're on the cross, then he's on the cross with you. Secondly, you are infinitely loved. The church can't Compromise on the truth, but what she can and does do is love and accompany people who are struggling. The whole body of Christ, the entire communion of saints is there with you. And I wish that there was some kind of easy, quick solution to offer where, you know, we could be like, oh, well, just don't worry because this. But this makes it all better. And now it's easy and you're not going to suffer. <laughs> I wish I could do that, but I can't do that. And I think so often in situations of real, genuine, deep human suffering, we might not be able to offer easy, quick solutions, but what we can offer is love and accompaniment. And just know that, you know, you are not alone. You are loved. You belong. <laughs> And then thirdly, you, just like everyone else, are called to sanctity and to happiness, to eternal joy with God in heaven. So the church saying that, you know, these sexual acts are not morally permissible, isn't the church trying to condemn you or push you down or oppress you. It's the church saying, okay, we are all called to chastity. We are all called to This love that is hard and requires self-mastery and can involve suffering, but it's not an arbitrary calling, right? This is our path to heaven. And this might sound counterintuitive, but this calling to chastity is a calling to joy. Okay. It's not a calling to like sadness and oppression and horrible things. Okay. It's a calling to live in accordance with the truth in a way that will bring us to heaven. Okay. That's all we have time for today. Next episode, we're going to wrap up this discussion of the sixth commandment by talking about marriage. I can't wait. Have a fantastic fortnight and I will talk to you soon. Bye.